to. You probably already hit record, didn't you? I did. <laughs> Figures. <laughs> All right, three, two. Hi, guys. Welcome to the Church Split. My name is Will. We got Brian with us today. What's up, heretics? And you guys know what we do here. We help you escape your church's echo chamber, learn to think biblically, and of course, challenge the status quo, which always needs challenging. And if you'd like to become an official church splitter, you can join our Patreon page and you get all uh, some of our exclusive content that comes out once in a great while. We try to, uh, if we do like an apologetics thing or if I do a sermon or anything, we try to release it there a month in advance for all our patrons. Now, granted, I know we haven't been as active lately, but to be fair, we've had a lot going on. So I appreciate you guys' patience. Yeah. Um, anything you want to add to that or not? Nah? We good? No, I'm just, we, well, we're going to be talking about hell today. So expect some, some jokes about it. <laughs> Lots of sarcasm. We're going to, we're going to talk the hell out of this. <laughs> Should I see myself out now? <laughs> I, I was going to say something similar. So, uh, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, I could just tell that this is going to be a fire episode. Hell is not a swear word. Jesus used it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, he used Gehenna, but you know. <laughs> Details. How we translate it. <laughs> uh, all we right. didn't use English, so. So this is a topic that Brian and I have wanted to cover for a long time. And guys, just so you know, we already know that we, for a while we've not been as active on this platform. And it's mainly because of a lot of transitions in our own lives. Uh, I've switched jobs and there's been a lot of craziness going on. Um, we've had to help my wife's brother uh, get established in some things. So, you know, there's real life outside of the YouTube and podcast world. Yeah. And we try to prioritize real life. Right. I think as good people we should. Yeah, exactly. Like if all well, not like, that we don't like you guys, but if we were just like, oh, we expect my you to YouTube do the same. channel. Like, what are we? Right. Like, <laughs> anyway. So I just do sometimes. I'm like, yeah, I feel bad because I know patrons are giving and we appreciate that, and Heck you're yeah. not forgotten. In fact, due due to patron giving, we we're able to get these nice. Mm arms yes, for you. this because you have no idea how many times in episodes our old ones would just drop or fall off and we had to like catch them. You might notice in a lot of old videos that Brian's is like always way off and like kind of Yeah, it's always kind of helter-skelter and then I would I think there's a there's probably 20 episodes where we're like trying to screw it back on the table. Yeah, like we're talking to each other, but you see our hands off screen. Keep going, Will. I'm going to work on this right now and not listen to it all. (laughs) (laughs) So very thankful for the patrons. Thank you guys so much for your patience while we've been getting rolling. So we're going to try to get regular content out to you uh, now as per the usual. But uh, with that being said, today we are covering a topic we've wanted to cover for a long time, which is hell. And if you don't like the topic of hell, then you can get the hell out of here. (laughs) Just okay. going to keep hell? on coming. It's going to just keep on coming. I can't stop it. I am sorry. This um, episode will feel like eternal conscious torment if we keep oh. making those jokes. <laughs> oh, okay. It just came to me. It's a, it's, a, it's a gift. Okay. Oh, my gosh. All right. So, all right. The reason why we want to talk about this topic is because, one, the objection of hell comes up a lot in apologetics. So mm. all our jokes and terrible puns aside, uh, this does come up a lot in apologetics. Why would a good God torture people forever? Um, and then the other question is, is, does he really torture them forever? So what, what we wanted to do is there's a lot. We did do a YouTube series on this. And so we're, we're going to be using the notes from that class that I did. But 
we're going to be doing like a more condensed version for you people who don't want to listen to a four week series with bad audio because I know it's in the uh, it's in the room of my church. Yeah. So uh, so for those of you guys who aren't sure don't know about it, there's two major views of hell. There's technically others, but there's two major ones. Uh, there's also of course universalism and things like that. But we're not going to get into universalism today. Although we do want to have a universalist on the channel, I think, to yeah. talk about their view. But we're less familiar with their view, so I don't want to misrepresent them. I've learned from the past. Um, so w- w- there, the two is eternal conscious torment, also known as the traditional view. So eternal conscious torment is exactly what most people are raised as, right? People die, then they wake up, and they're in f- flames and fire for all eternity. They're completely dying and being consumed, but never truly die or perish to exist and cease to exist. Then there's conditional immortality, which means immortality is conditional on belief. Otherwise, you're not immortal and you don't live forever. So this is also known as annihilationism, which is the idea that the soul is destroyed, but the believers live on forever. And what you'll notice throughout this, and we're probably going to hammer this a few times, is that the language on hell really depends on which which language you take literal and which one you take figuratively. So if you take the eternal fire kind of idea as this literal concept all the time, or like, you know, the... And some of the phrases in Revelation, if you take it hyper-literally, you might yeah. come to an eternal conscious torment thing. But then every time it talks about destruction, turns them to ash, make them basically cease to exist, that must be figurative. Yeah. And otherwise, it'd be the other way around, where you might say, well, the destruction is the literal part, and all the other ones are... is basically uh, hyperbolic speech for that destructive process. Does that make sense? Am I- yeah, so you have to essentially pick what's literal, what's figurative. You don't get to have both because they are kind of in tension. And this is why I say all the time that people really got to get, like, stop being like, well, Scripture clearly says. It's like, well, well, hold on. Scripture clearly teaches, if you read the Old Testament, it is very strong language of destruction. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the New Testament, and then you get some uh, things that like forever and ever more often. You hear a lot about fire more, and you just kind of and it starts painting the picture that like people built off of to build eternal conscious torment. Yeah. So it's not as cut and dry as people seem to think. And uh, for those of you who are not familiar with the annihilationist perspective, I want to present it because I think I can say with confidence that Brian and I both now are annihilationists. Yeah, it took you took me longer than you. You're like, yep. ECT's bunk, and I'm like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> we both grew up with ECTs. Yeah, we both grew up. Oh, yeah, by the way, acronyms CI, conditional immortality, also known as annihilationism, ECT, eternal conscious torment. So you're going to hear us use that because I'm not saying eternal conscious torment That's throughout this a entire lot. video. It's going to be a six hour video for yeah, you. ECT is good enough. Yeah. It'll do. So. The reason, and I actually was uh, curious on this. I did this study a couple years ago, and I I was on the fence for a long time. And then I did a deep dive study, and I came out an annihilationist. Mm -hmm. Um, So it wasn't one. It was one of those things where I knew annihilationism existed, and I just wasn't really like for it necessarily. But I was like, I'm not hostile toward it. I just think that there's some ridiculous scriptures that they're going to have to play some serious gymnastics with. And then I studied it, and I was like, oh, actually, never mind. Now with the presented evidence, I have to do gymnastics to get around the evidence. (laughs) So that's – but the idea here is I would – I will – we'll go through scripture a little bit. We'll go through some philosophy as well with this. 
but mostly I want it to be scriptural. I will show you where eternal conscious torment comes in, but then the annihilationist response, okay? So that's I think that's a fair way to go about this, right? Yep. Um, I do not think, as much as people make this like a big issue, like I've seen this on uh, doctrinal statements. It's actually on my church's doctrinal statement. Um, but it, And it's weird because it's like, it's weird that we want to make this like a thing that we make everyone agree on. Because bottom line is, whether you go to hell on our tortured forever but never die or whether you cease to exist either way hell's bad we yeah. don't want to go there and some people are like well yeah but if annihilation is true then hell is by far not as bad i'm like well it depends certain people the idea of ceasing to exist is more terrifying than yeah being in pain and <laughs> so. for the christian you're not going to experience either one right so so <laughs> the whole point is there is judgment at the end and it's not good so you shouldn't enjoy it and you should not you should not uh shy away from it but you also shouldn't require everyone to agree with you on how hell works and to keep with our mission obviously this isn't something that should split churches by any means nope. shouldn't, you shouldn't deny someone access to your church because they believe in a different doctrine of hell because honestly like i said one for the christian it really doesn't matter as far as where you're going it matters maybe on how you present the gospel how you talk to unbelievers um, how you talk about the severity of sin and what it costs, but in general, it doesn't. You're not going there if you're a Christian. And you're in. You're in Christ. You are. You are getting eternal life. So, but it's also not something to to have big arguments over. Right. It's something that we should be able to talk about and have kind of a broad understanding of. And we'll talk about how it it can help your apologetic if you're talking to believers. Right. Absolutely. So first off, quick history lesson. So before the basically the first, the New Testament period, um, the general view was that it was destruction. All enemies were destroyed. And then there was some crop ups of like, well, people were really, they'd be burned for seven years and then they'd be destroyed. Mm -hmm. uh, because that was some of the, the, some of the idea behind that was like Israel was persecuted so much that just being destroyed was too merciful. So they should be tortured too. <laughs> <laughs> so some resentment theology coming in. Uh, and then once Plato came on the scene and a lot of the Greek philosophers started philosophizing a lot more on the substance of the soul, that's where the idea of, um, the soul being eternal and indestructible came from is a Platonist thought primarily. Now, uh, I'm not going to get to all the arguments of Plato and how he argued for the eternality of the soul, but basically the eternality of the soul, it was in his mind cyclical. It was a very much a pagan kind of view. If you want a more Christian robust view of that, if you want a more of a Christian robust explanation, you should go to Thomas Aquinas. Um, who bear, built off of some of that stuff, but in a Christian way, that makes more sense. And so the idea, of course, is whether or not the soul is destructible or is it not destructible? Um, is it truly eternal and unable to be destroyed? And, of course, the annihilationist says yes. Eternal conscious torment says no. So anyway, um, with that all said, I think it just I do want to say, uh, put in a plug for Chris Date with Rethinking Hell. He's the one who made annihilationism kind of have a, a resurgence between him and uh, Fudge, Dr. Fudge. He's fantastic. I think it's Dr. Fudge. Anyway. Um, and then, of course, I, a lot of my notes I also got from a guy named Douglas Berry. So just want to give people proper credit. Um, the Fire That Consumes by Fudge is great. Also, Rethinking Hell by Chris Date, the book and the podcast are fantastic. Um, so just giving people credit where credit is due. But there's also like F.F. Bruce um, and quite a few other important people. So just credit where credit's due. 
I'm not, none of this is original to me. Uh, it's yeah. just things that, uh, I think that's a thing with you and I, we're, we're not as much original thinkers as we're people who compile information and then we process it and then we present it. Yeah, we're giving you, and this is where we kind of came to from our logical thought. So see if we're logical. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So first things first, why is this topic important? Because, and I think a few things is because it deals with, of course, life, death, eternal states of heaven and hell. But it's important because we want to be, make sure that we are warning people properly about the faith of unbelief and rebellion against God. Yeah. Also, it comes down to justice on God's part a little bit. How does God express his justice? Um, and there can be strong points for both. Uh, there, There is that idea of like, hey, well, how can God just, let Hitler off the hook by just simply killing him. Okay, well, then that's where eternal conscious torment might get a point where he truly does suffer. But then other people might say, but how can that just nice old unbeliever who has lived a pretty good life, how could it be just yeah. to torture them forever and ever? And here's one of the questions that people bring up is like, how could a temp temporary sin equate to an eternal punishment of torture and torment? couple arguments for that could be maybe because it, it's, it might be a temporary sin, but it's against an eternal God. Therefore, you sin against the eternal logos. Therefore, you must suffer eternally. Or it could just be that that's not right in general, and therefore annihilation is what gets the point. So, And I'd say the last reason why it's important, just from a basic level, is I think we all desire to know the truth. Absolutely. It's talked about quite a bit in Scripture. So we have a desire to know what it is accurately so that we can proclaim it accurately. 100%. And I think there's also that idea of making sure that for our apologetic that we have a strong one. I've used both eternal conscious torment and conditional immortality as apologetics. So some people might complain that God would be too harsh. And I point out that some people believe that God destroys people. Then some people will be like, well, I don't think God's harsh enough. I'm like, well, some people believe that God puts people in a state of conscious torment. So I've used <laughs> I've used both depending on what the objection is, because my whole point is to just get rid of the objections and get them to Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, not everyone agrees with that approach, but it's something that I, I do firmly believe is, uh, is an effective method because it kind of shows them that like, yeah, even Christians disagree on that. You don't need to agree on that particular view to be a Christian. And then they're like, well, crud. I guess that's a dumb objection to not be a Christian, right? Like, that's the idea. Yeah, last thing you need is someone not becoming a Christian because of one sect of Christianity might believe something that they believe appalling and even worse if what they believe is incorrect. Mm -hmm. yeah, 100%. So anyway, um, there is a great book I would definitely also recommend uh, by Letters from a Skeptic by Dr. De Gregory Boyd. I think Gregory Boyd's also an uh, open theist, um, but he does. Uh, he's also an annihilationist, and it, the the letters from a skeptic is fascinating because it's a letter exchange between him and his dad, and his dad, who was a skeptic who became a Christian, and hell was one of the big things that came up. In fact, hell has also come up a lot, and I'm part of the talk about doubts team, so in a lot of my counseling appointments, hell has come up, and I've used annihilationism to, in a sense, defend God, God's honor, and God's love and mercy. And that has been a very effective where people are like, oh, I guess that makes more sense. So I think, I do think annihilationism makes more sense, but I don't think, you know, if you believe eternal conscious torment, you're just an idiot. It's just, I think it makes more sense on the data. Uh, so I guess we should probably get to the data. Let's do it. All right. So enough of the talking, more to the getting to the stuff. So um, I don't think we are going to talk as much about this, the type of the soul. But I do want to mention that there is a lot of verses that talk about the mortality of the soul. So Matthew 10, 28 says this. 
They do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And that was a big one for me when I read this. Like, he just straight up says destroy. Like, if you ever look at the Greek, it means destroy. Yeah, not fear, a lot of latitude there. <laughs> yeah, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Well, if we're saying that the soul can't be destroyed, that you're that's not destroyed. It's literally the opposite of what that's saying. <laughs> so that would mean that you have to take, and this is one of those examples, that if you're eternal conscious torment, you have to take this figuratively, mm-hmm. right? So that's a good example of, like, I told you, it depends what you, language you take literal, which one you take um, hyperbolically. And so anyway, John 6.51 says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of this world is my flesh. So he's saying that only he who eats of his bread, only those who believe in him, basically, are his followers, will live forever. And remember, ECT would be that you don't live forever. I mean, that you do live forever, right? Yeah, you just live forever tormented. Yeah, if you're not a believer. So therefore, those who do not take the bread still live forever. Mm Mm-hmm. Different type of life, and I think that's what ECT would argue is that, well, one's like true life with Jesus and one is absent of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So you could say it's death as in separation, but is still you're still conscious. Exactly. Um, James 4.12 says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, it, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So again, one lawgiver and one judge who is able to save and destroy. That's again, again, the word of destruction. They will suffer the punishment. So 2 Thessalonians 1.9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So, and of course, the eternal conscious torment people would point out, they're like, well, eternal punishment is just being, uh, and etern- the punishment of eternal destruction is just being continually like lapped at by the flames um, and away, you're away from the presence of God. But of course, the annihilationists would simply point out that this is eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. And if you understand throughout Scripture that the presence of the Lord represents life, well, then if you're away from the presence of the Lord, you are no longer in life. That's why the Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sin because we're alienated from God's presence. Mm-hmm. That's why we were cast away from the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life, lest we live forever. So that's a bit really important picture throughout Scripture that many people seem to miss. But when it comes when it comes down to it, right here he is pointing. He's kind of pointing out that the, to be destroyed is to be in death, which is the opposite of God, who is life. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Well, you could even look at it, and I think we get to this a little bit more, but I was thinking about this today, that we talk about spiritual death being the separation from Jesus, and we talk about physical death is really the separation from the soul from the body. It's all just varying levels of separation is really how we describe death in Scripture. True. Uh, Hebrews 10.39, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That seems like another strong, like, if you're thinking of it from an annihilation perspective, like, okay, um, yeah, that seems a pretty strong argument. And Jay Stott did say, say this. He said, it would seem strange if people who are said to suffer destruction are in fact not destroyed. And it is difficult to imagine a perpetually inconclusive process of <laughs> perishing. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's why some people have a hard time like thinking about hell. They're like, well, how does that work? Like we think of living forever and that's okay. That's easy to kind of get our minds wrapped around this. I live and I live and I live. Mm-hmm. I live now. Cool. What does it mean to be eternally constantly destroyed while still being conscious? What? What is that? <laughs> um, so now I already know what many of you are thinking who have been raised ECT. You're probably thinking, okay, what about the rich man Lazarus? What about these passages of Revelation, like the you know the sun, when, uh, the, the fire burns forever and ever? Things like that. Those are great questions. And so we are going to address those. 
Um, so uh, I think we, a couple of things to first clarify is the terminology of hell. Would you agree? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. So when you're reading your Bibles, some of you, if you're using something like the King James, you might just see the word hell, 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 <laughs> hell, or the grave a lot. Mostly hell. Uh, problem is, is that it's not the best translation. It, there's even some of this in the like the Apostles' Creed, right? Uh, that Christ descended into hell for three days, and in the Apostles' Creed, Creed a lot of times it says that, but we don't understand that what that might mean in that context. So there's different words for hell. So there are there's Sheol, which is the Hebrew word. It's a Hebrew word for the place of the dead or the grave, and then there's Hades which is the Greek word for the same thing, which is place of the dead or the grave. So Sheol and Hades are the same thing. And then there's Gehenna, which is the Valley of Hinnom, which is south of Jerusalem. It is actually, contrary to popular belief, and I used to preach this, but it's mm-hmm. not true. I remember you saying this. <laughs> I know. It's not a garbage heap, but the place where the children of Israel sacrificed their children to Molech. It is also the Valley of Rephaim, which would reference Nephilim. Essentially, it means a place of evil and death. So when he references Gehenna, it's not a burning garbage heap outside of Jerusalem. That is like a very widely spread, like just straight up lie. Like nobody knows where it came from, but it's funny. Like the more you dig, people are like, this literally has no data. Why do people say this? <laughs> um, but if somebody knows, let me know in the comments below. I'd love to know. Um, but the idea here is that, so when Sheol or, Tartar, Sheol or Hades is mentioned, it's talking about the place of the dead or the grave. Tartarus is the pit. Okay, which is another idea of like the, the the underworld, so to speak. And then Gehenna is a great place of evil where people sacrificed to, to Molech and Satan and where the Nephilim were with the Raphaim, all that good stuff. So hell is considered the final resting place for all unrighteous, all, all the unrighteous, the devil and his angels. So when we use the word hell, that's usually what we're thinking of. So here's the problem. In a lot of translations, Sheol, Hades, Tartarus, and Gehenna are all translated as hell, which can, no wonder why there's some confusion on this. Oops. (laughs) So if all those are that way, then it becomes a problem. That's actually one of the areas that the English Standard Version does a really good job. It actually will just say Sheol or just say Hades or it'll Mm -hmm. just say Gehenna. Like it'll it'll actually, and a lot of times it'll, it'll use the word hell only for Gehenna because Gehenna seems to be like the big one that Jesus is referencing. Yeah. So it reminds me of such a funny clip. Do you remember that with uh, Steven Anderson and James White? He's talking to James White about this, and and James White asks him about, well, why does the King James render, render all these words as hell? And Steven Anderson goes, well, to make it easier to read. And he goes, that's the first time I've ever heard a King James-only advocate make, make the case that it's easier to read. <laughs> Which is funny. Perfect mic drop. Great job, James. Which is funny because (laughs) if there was any other translation of the King James onlyest, they would say that it's watering down the Bible. Yep. But it's funny because it just goes to show that with King James onlyest, it it tends to shift just depending on what it is. That's your argument. Anything to protect the tradition, man. Yes. I love that clip. (laughs) Yeah, it is really funny. One of those good James White moments. I feel like James White has a lot of like that Trumpism thing going on mm-hmm. where you're like, oh, sometimes it's really good. Sometimes it's really bad. Like, oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's like, oh, stop, stop, stop. Other times you're like, yeah, get him. <laughs> um, this is really, really the mm-hmm. best. So anyway, so here's some Bible passages to consider a little bit between life and death. Genesis 3.22 talks about, you know, it seems to indicate that mankind would not live forever unless he eats of the tree of life, which this could be referring to mortal immortality or a spiritual one, right? So it could be mortal or it could just talk about your spiritual existence. And the, But we see the tree of life returns in, the, in Revelation at the new creation, seeming to indicate that its connection with immortality even further. 
Which is why I've always taken the, the tree of life to be representative of not only part a blessing of God's presence, but of life immortal, immortal life, which is why I think that that's what it meant in the garden, which is why I think it's what it means in Revelation. It's the bookend for life and life. So when you have those two going on, well, we're separated from the tree of life, so therefore we die because we're separated from God's presence, who is life. Mm-hmm. And then we see it come back when God reestablishes his kingdom at the end. We see this like parallelism there. Yeah, and it's interesting that that God protects the tree of life with the cherubim mm-hmm. in Genesis 3 because he doesn't want them to reach out and take it, which, I mean, what would that, what would that mean if he's like, well, you don't want him to live forever in a sinful state yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> I want him to do that later when I cast him in, into hell. <laughs> well, that's why, <laughs> well, why I find it hard Like when it talks. <laughs> that was actually pretty funny, Brian. So I think what many people just tend to miss here too is like, because a lot of people look at death as the punishment from God. Like, mm-hmm. if you eat of the tree, I will punish you with death. But he doesn't really say that. He says, if you eat of the tree, then you will surely die. Kind of like if you touch the hot stove, you will surely be burned. Yeah. I'm not punishing you. I'm just letting you know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's something that's important here. He separates them from the tree of life. Why? Because they have now fallen and been corrupted. They're corrupted by sin. Sin has entered into the world. Satan's entered the world. Sin has now corrupted this, this place. If they live forever in this evil world, they will never be able to experience Eden again. Mm-hmm. They'll never be able to experience that new creation again. Yeah. So they are separated from the tree of life, so that way they might die. I think a lot of people don't realize that dying is also a mercy from God. Yeah. So that way we can experience the new creation to come. Make sense? Yep, makes sense. Okay, so also, of course, John 3.16, he uses the word perish. And in the Greek, I think it's pronounced apolomai or apolomai. It is correctly translated uh, many times as, so it, it, when it says perish, it is correctly, correctly translated many times as destroy throughout the New Testament. Therefore, to correctly understand John 3.16, it would be, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not be destroyed, but have everlasting life, which is immortality, also knowing God, Right. So John 12, 25 says, the one who loves his life loses it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it uh, keep it to eternal life. God always seems to frame it between life and death, not eternal bliss and eternal torture. You actually won't really find God using like that conscious torment language, really. Yeah, that's not compared. It, it's always like you will live or you will be perished or destroyed or mm. something along that nature, right? So... In 2 Timothy 1.10, and which one has been manifested through the appearing of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death, brought life, immortality to light through the gospel. So immortality is only through the light of the gospel. People who are suffering eternally and consciously in hell forever are immortal, but they rejected the gospel. They don't have the light of the gospel. Yeah. So that's another hard passage, I think, to wrestle with. Some of these things become really weird on how figurative you have to get with. So, and of course, there's uh, Philippians 3.19, their end is destruction, their their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. Um, and then it's also important here to mention that death is thanatos in the Greek, which literally means death or separation from life. And death in Hebrew, I think it's muth. It means to die, to kill, or to dispatch. So, again, these words that are being used are very much that way. Mm-hmm. So, of course, the next question that comes up is the nature of the punishment. How Both views, ECT and CI, both agree that the, na- that the nature of the punishment is eternal. It's an eternal punishment, okay? Permanent. <laughs> 
Once you're there, it's done. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to note, it, note that when it's, a lot of times people will be like, well, if you're an annihilationist, you don't believe in eternal punishment. No, we do. It's pretty permanent. Like yeah. if I give you the death penalty today, is that's pretty permanent, right? You're not you're not coming back to 2023. <laughs> you're not coming back, and also God's not changing His mind. Right. It's not like okay, just kidding. Unless you know you're Lazarus, but <laughs> <laughs> otherwise it's pretty pretty straightforward. And um, sometimes people think that. You know, annihilationism lets people off scot-free, but that's not true because, again, you are still judged, and a lot of annihilationists believe that you are burned into destruction. So essentially, like, you're basically burned alive into ash, which I don't know about you guys, and this always cracks me up. I'm like, okay, so let's say that's true. (laughs) Let's say you are eternally burned forever. Yeah. Uh, Oh, not burned forever. Let's say you're eternally, you're burned Burned and then turned to ash. And you say that, but then I think anyone who's burned at the stake... Yeah. If I was said, well, psh, they're burned at the stake. They got off scot free. <laughs> I don't think anyone who was burned at the stake would be like, really, bro? Am I am, am I a joke to you? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I just get burned to death. Oh, okay, I'll keep sinning. Yeah. Thanks, right. Jesus. Like, <laughs> it really, it's kind of insulting to to that to people who have actually been burned yeah. alive. But I don't think it's also realistic because it's like, no, no, no. To be burned alive is still torturous agony. Yeah. It's not that you're off scot free. It's just the fact that it finally does end. Yeah. The CI side really does have a point here, though, because torture is considered immorally wrong. Mm -hmm. If somebody commits a crime against me and my family and I torture them. Oh, boy. (laughs) You would be like, okay, well, like, I get it. Somebody like hit your kid, but I think you might be overreacting. Yeah. You know, put the put the car battery down. Yeah. (laughs) unclamp his hands what are you doing you know you would be like dude that's a little yeah. much right we we think that's wrong we would say that no if you, someone deserves the death penalty just put them down mm-hmm. yeah it, cruel and unusual punishment is is usually considered not moral <laughs> right so um it's it's just it doesn't really make a lot of sense and then also it says in deuteronomy 25 it says if the guilty man deserves to be beaten the judge shall make him lie down and have him flogged in his presence with the number of lashes his crime deserves. But he must not give him more than 40 lashes. So even in Old Testament, like, Mosaic law, which, again, we could we should probably eventually just do a series through the Mosaic law because a lot of people misunderstand parts of its application. Yeah. But even here, he's going, at some point, this extreme punishment has to end, right? Give him what he deserves, but not more than 40. <laughs> That's too much. Right, but that, right, so that tells you there's a line, right? Mm-hmm. There's a line where something might be excessive. Um, Luke 12 says that the servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does the things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. So even then, the, in other words, the punishment fits the crime. Mm-hmm. And if I sin a few times in life, then why, what does it make sense to be you know, eternally tortured for eons upon eons upon eons ad nauseum. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and that's one of the things that like philosophically just doesn't, doesn't make it wrong. It just means right. There's already some cognitive difficulties here. Yeah. And I think in general, in our hermeneutic, we've always tried to make sure that the way God is acting morally should correspond with how God dictates morality in scripture if he's showing us something that's, okay, this is the line, this is where it's not moral anymore, then we shouldn't expect that God will still do it. So we try to use that a lot, and I think that would that really fights against the whole idea of nominalism that we talk about a lot with Calvinism, um, where God doesn't have to 
follow the absolutes that he gives in Scripture. Yeah, it's just a name only. Yeah. Um, right. So the obvious distinction any ECT proponent um, would probably make here is between with these Old Testament verses is that um, there's a difference between temporary punishment in this world versus an eternal state of your rebellion. But, of course, the annihilationists would just simply press that issue and, and say that it seems to be teaching... Um, a temporary punishment in general, that that's like God's will, that punishments mm-hmm. be temporary. <laughs> like how 20 years is greater than 10 years in prison, but to kill the person for their crime is considered the most severe and the most permanent. So <laughs> there's escalation. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, all right. So ECT believes that the fire is everlasting uh, in the sense of whenever it talks about the everlasting fire, ECT, the traditional view, is going to say that it's everlasting because it is burning the victim forever and ever. And so on this view, the eternality of the fire constitutes proof of the eternal suffering. And that's what will happen a lot when I'm like, well, I'm an annihilationist. People start quoting this idea of the fire is everlasting. And they're like, so if the fire is everlasting, it must mean that the person suffering is suffering everlasting. Be careful with categories. (laughs) Right. It was like, okay, well... First off, no, because, again, categories. But secondly, I don't think that language is used the way you think it, that language is used in the Bible. Yeah. So uh, conditional immortality, though, our, my view would be that eternal fire is hinting at the eternal result of the fire. And we'll talk more on this a little bit later. But the verse um, could be interpreted both ways. Matthew 25, 46 says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So the wages of sin is death, but the second death is punishment, and it will last forever. So either way, it could be that that particular verse could be translated either way. So um, Matthew 7, 13 through 14 says, enter by the gate, by, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it and are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. So there we go. We see that parallelism of death and life again. And those who find it are few. So destruction can indicate that you are indeed destroyed, right? So see, I destroyed and put away. This is consistent with the word uh, with the word in Old Testament language, destruction. The okay. word destruction in Old Testament language is always referring to destroyed, wiped out. Um, and so I would expect that same kind of language to be used in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. There's this weird, I think... I, I, we haven't talked much about it, but I think that uh, the doctrine of progressive revelation has almost gotten out of hand, where we use it to just be like, oh, we know that's what the Old Testament means, but the New Testament came along and just redefined all these terms. Yeah, none of that matters anymore. That's just what the Jews believed, and they killed Jesus, so you can't trust anything they say. Right, and so it just <laughs> turns into this whole, like, nah, we're just going to offload mm-hmm. all those and go with New Testament definitions in the Greek, where it's like, well, should we take the Hebrew definition into consideration before we consider the, the Greek and Roman definition of the words? Yeah. Like... Anyway, especially when so much of the New Testament is quoting the Old Testament to prove its validity. Like the whole book of Hebrews is like, this is true because verse, 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 verse. Look at Paul. This is true because verse, verse, verse. You know it to be true because this. This is what Moses taught, and you are a Moses person. And if you don't use those Hebraic like uh, definitions, then you really open yourself up to progressive revelation mm-hmm. with your doctrine of progressive uh, progressive Christianity with your doctrine of progressive revelation, because they could just keep claiming more and more and more new definitions, redefining these terms as time goes on in our own modern context, and they say, well, what they really meant when they were defining it this way was this, mm-hmm. and it's why it's best to just stick with historical understandings. I've gotten way more and more. I'm like very firm in that now, like that. It's like, yeah. it has to be the historical understanding. So anyway, destruction is never tra- translated. The point is here, the reason why I brought that up is because destruction is never translated as torture or torment, ever. 
Thus, it is either meaning quite literally to be destroyed or figuratively meaning that they exist at a place of ruin and destruction. That's the only thing it can mean. It either means that they're destroyed or somehow it's figurative language. So the argument here is that God, of course, does not preserve the body or soul in the destruction view. We believe that God annihilates it. So anyway, now let's get into I know what everyone wants. Like, okay, we get it. We already know there's a lot of verses talking about destruction, bro. <laughs> Can you like move on to like the things that are obviously the most controversial? Yep. Let's bring up the proof text from right, the side. Right. Well, and also so let's talk about like the texts that are obviously gonna be the strongest for eternal conscious torment. Because that's yep. important, right? Like, and there are good texts for it. Like there are I definitely see where people are coming from on those. Because it would be a silly view if we ignored all the strong verses for the other view. Mm-hmm. It'd be silly. This is one of those areas just because I think annihilationism is true. Doesn't mean I think that if somebody believes in ECT, they're crazy. You know what yeah. I mean? So um, my whole thing is here is there are definitely, there are some passages stronger than others, but I think once you realize that the strong passages for ECT tend to crumble under the evidence, but the annihilation ones remain strong, that annihilationism just makes more sense. Yeah. So um, let's talk about the important passages regarding hell. And we're going to start in Mark chapter 9, verses 47 through 50. Actually, Brian, why don't you read it? I've All been right. doing a lot of talking. Yep. You like to talk, so I, do I just like, like to, to make color commentary on the things you say. You just like to make snarky <laughs> remarks. I do. I and like then make snark. everyone hate me for being the one who drives it, exactly. even though you're like, I agree with every word he All says. All part of the plan. <laughs> <laughs> All right, starting verse 47. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will it make it salt how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Uh oh, fire's not quenched. Fire's the not worms. Quenched. It, it this this also did make me go, wait a minute. So so here's the thing, because uh, these are uh, when I first started reading, like studying this topic. I told Brian, I was like, "Yeah, but they're gonna have to try to, to make these passages make sense." And I brought this passage up. Mm-hmm. This passage, "Rich Man and Lazarus," there's a few other passages. I was like, "They got to make yeah. this make sense." If annihilation wants any ground to stand on with me, it needs to make these make sense. And then it does. And then I was like, "Oh crap, that actually <laughs> makes sense." <laughs> well, I was hoping that'd be a harder challenge. <laughs> yeah. So see if you think the same. Uh, Jeremiah seven twenty says. So let's. For, okay, hold on. Before we talk about Jeremiah. So right there he says, hey, the hell, the, in hell you'll be cast where fire is not quenched and mm-hmm. the worm does not die. So it's a picture of you're being burned and eaten by worms. Now, granted, if you're being burned and eaten by worms, I don't know how worms live in flame, but it's supposed to be a thing. And I was just like, well, they're like supernatural worms. You know, that's like what I was thinking. I was like, that's messed up. Yeah. The person's like, you're telling me the soul has to, can be destroyed, but this worm can live forever? <laughs> <laughs> So what happens, though, is if you go back into the Old Testament, so it's important that we let the Bible, uh, we say this all the time in hermeneutics, let the Bible interpret the Bible. Mm-hmm. So what is that language used from? What is, has that language been used before? Well, it has in Jeremiah chapter 7. It says this in verse 20. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and wrath will be poured out on this place upon man and beast, upon the trees and the field and the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. So he's bringing judgment on these people, and he's saying that the fire will not be quenched. But is that fire burning today? Do you see it People burning? are still constantly dying. <laughs> <laughs> Do 
No, we see that that's almost, this is what we would call a Hebraism or like some sort of hyperbolic statement in Hebrew, an idiom, if you will, that is g- giving you a picture of destruction, right? Mm-hmm. This is like this is like smack talk. This is like ancient world smack talk. Like, uh, you know, I'm going to raise your house. I will destroy your family and burn down everything that you love. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and really, are you really going to raise their house? No, you're probably going to like kick them out of the house and take the house for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Like it's just, it's smack talk. It's this idea is a picture to say utter defeat and destruction. So we see it again in Jeremiah in chapter 17. But if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy and not bear a burden and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it will devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. <laughs> so again, we see. And what is that What is that quench talking about? The devouring, the destruction so this is when wherever you're reading this, there's actually a stronger case, biblically speaking, because we've seen it used before in the past, that this idea of the fire not being quenched is really a picture of just destruction. Yeah. And God being settled in his method of of anger and not going to be talked out of it. Right, one hundred percent. And then there's another one, if I could turn there. And this is one that this is exactly what Jesus is quoting. So I wanted to show you those pictures before I broke down this part of it because this part really shows the fact that what Jesus was quoting, quote, Jesus wasn't saying this out of the blue. Because in Isaiah 66, the last verse 24 says, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. This is a battlefield. This is a place of destruction. This is a place where people died. And God was talking about the, again, the idea of it shall not be quenched and things will not die is not talking about an eternal state of that. It's talking about a finality of that. Mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, we, and we use sometimes that word forever, like, oh my goodness, I was there forever. Well, obviously I wasn't there forever. Yeah. I'm here now. Mm-hmm. So there's clearly a finality. What I'm saying is that I was there a very long time. But now it's over with. Yeah. What you're saying is the Secretary of State is eternal. Yes, exactly. The DMV <laughs> is an eternal place of hell. <laughs> um, that is true. That's too. what I picture hell being, actually. Yeah, like, <laughs> could, you, could you imagine waking up in hell and it's actually the DMV? You're like, no. <laughs> in that view, death is is a sweet relief. <laughs> yeah. Just end it, JoJo. End it. Um, anyway. So the fire is unquenchable, okay? So that Jesus is quoting Isaiah 66, 24 here, and it's picturesque. If Jesus is quoting Isaiah, shouldn't we read Isaiah's context with it? I, After all, Isaiah was not talking about the soul here. He was talking about bodies that were destroyed on the battlefield. And if Jesus says, hey, if you don't do this, you will be cast into hell where the fire does not is not quenched and the worm does not die. In other words, you'll be cast into a place of death and destruction. You will be destroyed. <laughs> Makes sense. And this would be like standard idiomatic language, hyperbolic speech that they would probably use. In fact, annihilation was such a prominent view up until Jesus's, uh, Jesus's life and then even after. The, do you know, anyone who's familiar with this channel already knows who, whom we have beef with in church history. Mm-hmm. But do you know who popularized eternal conscious torment, Brian? Augustine. Augustine of Hippo. That guy, man. Give me a time machine so I can rip him out of church history. <laughs> like, you're done. We're done. He's done. He did a lot of great work. 
but man, did some of his teachings, uh, <laughs> some of his work was not so great, right? So there's, okay, there's a great work and there's bad work of his. And early Augustine was better than later Augustine. Yeah, I would agree with that. So, and I do, and his atonement stuff was based, and I enjoy it. So, you know, that's why that's why I have a hard time hating on him so much because so much I've done so much study on the atonement where I'm like, okay, like I don't hate everything about him. Yeah, but his original sin is trash. He was able to repeat some existing correct church doctrine. Right. Uh, his belief on grace and free will is trash, and his view on Romans nine is trash, and his view on hell was trash. So. <laughs> <laughs> I just uh, and by by the way, if I disagree with it, it's trash. Okay, that's just <laughs> that's clear. a Hebraism. That's <laughs> clearly hyperbole. <laughs> just because you disagree with me doesn't mean you're trash. It just means you're mostly trash. <laughs> just kidding. Again, oh, this is how we get canceled. We're filming this at ten o'clock at night. Let us have some fun. <laughs> Seriously, let's relax. It's a bro. Friday. Like, let's just roast each other and have a good time. All right, cool. Um, so anyway. Again, hell equals Gehenna, so the place of evil and burning of babies to destruction, things like that. So when you hear him say hell, you think got to think of this evil place of destruction. So when they go to this place of dead bodies, keep that in mind. Um, I, I, and so Edward Fudge says some pretty good stuff on this, but, re, but the point essentially is on Isaiah 64 is that the worm is idiomatic picture of death. And we would say this too, right? You know, like uh, when we say so, like, you know, if you hear in like a medieval movie or read in a book somewhere, like the birds will, you know, pick from your flesh or something yeah. like that. That's You'll be consumed with maggots. Right. Exactly. It, that, the idea is that you're going to be dead, right? We won. So the word, the worm is very idiomatic of the same thing. The unquenchable, unquenchable fire, it would also be the same thing because we see also that same language is used uh for, in Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll get that. Uh, let's just do that real quick. So this yeah. was the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? So they were reduced to ashes as a spectacle of God's power, God's awesome power and judgment. Second Peter 2.6 says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Hmm. What was that? <laughs> Louder in the back? He made him an example of what's going to happen. <laughs> that was a pretty tight. Utter example. destruction by fire. <laughs> utter destruction by fire and brimstone. That's what I got. Like you're just wiped out. So, but 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 the smoke what? goes up forever. Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. <laughs> Wait, that's also the same. <laughs> yes. So Peter, it seems to, uh, it seems to Peter uh, that what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah will happen to unbelievers. But in Malachi four three, we see what the Bible says. He says, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So they will be reduced to ash when you tread on their feet. And as you'll see later, guys, this idea of the smoke rising forever and ever is also a picture of destruction. So this... And so the whole point is that all these different passages, again, seem to be indicating the fate of unbelievers as either utter destruction and death or are figurative to a more eternal state like eternal conscious torment. But it really does seem to lend itself more to just destruction language, mm-hmm. right? Especially when you're like, okay, Jesus said this, but then when I look at it in the Old Testament, every time it, you, that language is used, it's talking about things that were utterly destroyed. Mm-hmm. So I would have to insert a Platonist view of the soul being indestructible 
and then with that presupposition justify those verses by reinterpreting them being, oh, they can't mean destructive language. It's got to be torturous language. Yeah. So therefore, all destruction language must be figurative, and then all the eternal fire language and worm language must be quite literal that that is unquenchable and undying because it is feeding and feasting on something. Yeah. You know what I mean? It seems like this. When you actually start... Like this is what happened with me anyway. Maybe not you, but at least what happened with me when I was studying it, it turned into, okay, I now didn't realize how many presuppositions I had in that, right? My presupposition of, oh, if the worm's not dying, it must mean it's eternally feasting on something. Oh, it must be the soul? Yeah, I don't know how a worm feasts on a soul. Yeah, be careful. This might be a tweet later, but be careful about find and replace theology. If you're taking the word every time you find it and replacing it with something else so it matches your theology, like, I don't know, turning every time it says wine into grape juice just so that you can um, continue to argue against alcohol, you might have bad theology. Or unless you argue, uh, what is it? Or maybe at least I could, maybe not bad theology, just maybe inconsistent theology. Right. So uh, anyway, so then um, obviously this still t- sounds terrible, right? To be destroyed, <laughs> um, to be made an example of before the great and mighty power of God to be reduced to ash and cease to exist does not sound like a good time. I don't want to be there for that party. <laughs> um, and in Daniel 12, 2, we see, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake and some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And some people go right there. See, uh, everlasting contempt. So they are they're they're experiencing contempt forever. So ECT people will say the stronger proof text. Uh, this is a strong proof text for our position because they are awakened to either life or shame and contempt. They can only have shame and contempt if they exist. If they inherit eternal life, then it makes sense that the unbeliever will inherit eternal shame as he exists in torment, separated from the goodness of God. But the annihilationist will be the one to point out that the only one that mentions anything to do with life is the believer. It is shameful and uh, contemptible to reject goodness. You will be judged before God and man. You therefore inherit shame and contempt before being destroyed and then are remembered for your evil, and therefore it's contemptuous. Um, Think about it like this way. Does Adolf Hitler not still live under shame and contempt to this day? Yeah, by the, by referenced the in every single argument that anyone ever has to prove that their person is wrong because they're like Hitler. Right. <laughs> like Hitler is this idea. There is he, there is much contempt his way. In a very real way, um, he will be brought forth to shame and everlasting contempt because he even experiences contempt to this day. But also we see two emotions here with shame and contempt. Shame would just mean that the unsaved have shame, which makes sense, right? Because they're brought back to life and realize that they rejected the one true God. And so they feel shameful for their actions. And then contempt, which is deron in Hebrew, it is used in Isaiah 66, 24, remember the one that we just read about <laughs> worms and, and all that, to describe the contempt and disgust that the righteous have for the wicked. So it's disgusting because we look at their evil and their rejection of God and all that is good, and it is disgusting to us. So all the righteous look at it, and it's disgusting. And God looks at it as disgusting. It's the same word as contempt, as disgust, which is why like a lot of Christians are so disgusted with many of the things in the world today, which is why some people look at it as hatred, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you would disagree with LGBT issues or um, abortion issues, suddenly they get all crazy about it, and they're like, well, and you, know, they're con- you might experience contempt. They go, well, you're hateful. Yeah. Well, no, I just find this act to be morally despicable. Um, 
I don't hate you. I'm just saying that the act itself is disgusting, mm -hmm. right? You know, there's a difference. So that's kind of the idea. To, uh, so this follows, again, with the passage that the people seeing unrighteous unbelievers um, in that are going into destruction on Isaiah are filled with contempt at their destruction due to their wickedness. So anyway, believers possess contempt on their evil, and the unbelievers receive their contempt. So anyway. And now when you were first kind of studying this, this is the verse that I thought it was Matthew 13, 42. I was like, come on, but what about this verse? And it says, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I actually had a teacher back in middle school that always say that all the kids were full of weeping and gnashing of teeth every time we complain <laughs> about something. I was like, where do I hear that before? I think that's scripture, actually. <laughs> So you want to? So if that was a big one for you, you want to tackle this one? Yeah. So you know the idea of. Well, I guess we can do a cross reference here. So Luke thirteen twenty eight um, says, "And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there'll be weeping, gnashing of teeth." So obviously, if you're a proponent of ECT, you're saying, "Here you go. There it is. People are crying. They're gnashing their teeth. They have to be conscious in order to do this. They they're gnashing their teeth in anger." They're mad that they are that they're being tortured, and they're mad that they didn't accept Christ when they needed to. Um, and this can't happen unless they're in a specific place. They're right. This requires a location, and this requires them to be alive, um, which are good points. Honestly, that's what I thought too. Um, and then CI would say this is a misunderstanding of the Hebrew phrase, and is another idiom idiom that we've been talking about. Um, so it really depends on what part you're taking here literally and what part you're taking figuratively. Again, as we've said throughout this video, um, ECT takes construction, destruction and death figuratively, and CI is taking the gnashing of teeth and the worms, as we talked about before, as picturesque. So what does the language indicate in other places of Scripture? So a couple cross-references again. Job 16.9 says, He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Psalm 37, 12 says the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. Leviticus 2, 16 says all your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry. We have swallowed her. Ah, yes, or ah, this is the day we longed for. Now we have it, we see it. And then Acts 7, 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. So obviously gnashing teeth isn't something said only once in scripture. Right, absolutely. And it's also funny because it's not always in like torturous positions. It's actually mm -hmm. a picture of anger and rebellion yeah. and rejection, right? They ground their teeth, you see here. They gnash his teeth at me because my adversary sharpens his eyes against me. So if you see that with Job, right, he's gnashing his teeth and he sharpens his eyes against me. Is this the... And this is where I say, like, yes, it depends what you take hyperbolic and it, takes, it depends what you take literally. But which language sounds more literal? Which one sounds more hyperbolic? Yeah. The sharpening your eyes <laughs> against you? Mm -hmm. That sounds more hyperbolic and idiomatic than I'm going to reduce them to ash yeah. or destroy them, right? Yeah. Yeah, plus, Am I making sense on that? Yes. Like, some I of this just looks like it's more picturesque. Like the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. Clearly, it's a picture. The wicked plots against the righteous, right? So all your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They cry. We have swallowed her. Well, no one's swallowing people, right? And this is the day we longed for. Now we have it. We see it. 
Well, it's also just be careful you're not inferring something extra to the text that isn't there, right? And I know I did this thinking of this from an ECT perspective. I'm picturing this as eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth and not a specific moment where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth at the realization that they are now going to be destroyed. They have now missed out on the opportunity for eternal life. They have missed out on the truth. They have rejected the Son of God. Um, so that would generate this kind of reaction. Just like you would say if someone's uh, you're, you're rooting for your favorite football team and, oh, yeah, those fans are going to be weeping at the end of this game. They're going to be so sad. It's not that they're going to be sad forever, Right. Unless you're you're a Michigan fan and you're talking about Appalachian State, because we are still <laughs> sad eternally about that game. So put that in the comments if you know what I'm talking about. Um, but I, that's how I read it. I read this eternality to this idea of weeping and gnashing of teeth, and I think you can also read it without inserting anything to the text as just a moment where they are mm-hmm. at the realization. Right. So now, so that's, I think, one of the big things to read. Like, whenever you see some of this language for hell, look at it in the context in the Old Testament, and you'll notice mm-hmm. that it doesn't say what you think it says, especially usually it's like in a very temporal state, talking about a very particular situation. Um, but so, so the strongest language for the traditional view is in Revelation, which, by the way, I do want to say this if one of your strongest proof texts, is from one of the most ambiguous books <laughs> in the Bible, you might want to start questioning how strong you use that text. Yeah. Uh, Revelation is one of those books that people have debated on. Uh, it is one of those... I've re- I read a Four Views book uh, a couple years ago, uh, one that showed Amil, Preterism, Pre-Mill, and some other view. I think it might have been a historic Pre-Mill or Mid-Trib mm-hmm. or something, whatever. And I read all of them and went, wow, actually all those make a really good case for each other. Yeah, like they really make a good case. So again, kind of like hell can be taken different ways. So can Revelation, and so again, just just some thoughts here. Be careful how much you push Revelation as literal, because I mean, dude, if you do, things get weird, right? You know, Mm -hmm. the dragon, multiple horns, a a harlot, where everyone goes into her. (laughs) Like, there's a lot of weird stuff if you take it too literally. Yeah. Uh, So anyway. Um, there's a lot of picturesque language being used. So Revelation 14, 9 through 11 says this. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. They, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. So people go, boom, right there, roasted, Mm -hmm. okay? Problem is a few things, because it depends, again, on your interpretation of Revelation. Yeah. So one, we don't see people cast into the uh, the actual lake of fire until, like, later in Revelation. So this here doesn't seem like it's talking about the final resting place. They're not in hell yet. (laughs) Right. So if you're talking about, like, if you're going to literal timeline in Revelation, like you're going to, like, a pre-trib rapture view or any kind of, like, historic kingdom, futurist view, that becomes a problem because your timeline gets skewed here, okay? Because this is not clearly talking about that. So, and it says, I have full strength, it's a cup of anger, he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels. Uh, the presence smoke of, of their who? torment. <laughs> the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. But get, but we'll talk about this here, you'll find. 
um, it's not as clear as you might think. Um, also, it says they have no rest day or night. Is that talking about them being tortured, or is that talking about their evil hearts having no rest day or night? Because it's about their wickedness, right? The mark of the beast on their foreheads, which is kind of this idea almost of evil being implanted into their thoughts, right? Like, you can kind of get that idea of it. So if this idea of evil is being planted into their thoughts, then they have no rest day or night. And it's like that. It's the same kind of concept of the Psalms when it talks about the wicked are against me, day and night they torment me or they attack me and they're against yeah. me. So kind of like this continual language. Or like Genesis 6 says the, their hearts were set on evil continually. Right, right, exactly. So same kind of concept where it uses kind of like one long, like one hyperbolic phrase to kind of get this idea that it's a pretty persistent problem. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily something to be literal. Uh, and the idea that we would take it, like that Westerners have often taken, I should say. So CI, this is a parallelism here, and it's a really important. And we might try to we'll put this try to put this on the screen how the parallelism works, um, because if you're not familiar with parallelisms, a lot of times what they do is that they'll say the first phrase and the last phrase parallel each other, and then the second phrase and the se- uh, second to last phrase parallel each other. And then the third and third parallel each other. So the point is that you're not supposed to read it like left to right, left to right, left to right. You're supposed to read it in a sense where it's like it's kind of driving at a concept by sandwiching them um, by going by taking that first concept and then hitting the second and the third. And then the third, the second and the last again and the, and the last parallels the first. So it's, it's kind of like a sandwich going on here. Mm-hmm. And the Bible does this a lot. There's a lot of parallelisms. And if you take parallelisms, literally, you have a problem. You're going to really run into some very confusing things. Hebraic poetry loves parallelisms. And for us, we think ride, like rhymes and we think of like rhythm in our, in our poetry. For them, a lot of times it's parallelisms and mm-hmm. concepts. So if you parallel concepts and these things, then you start seeing it. So we'll put it on the screen here in a minute. But anyway... Um, this is a, so there's a, a few ways one could look at this, that this is a parallelism referring to their utter destruction. So it's important to note that this takes place again um, in front of the angels and the lamb before the great white throne judgment. And so it does not seem that they are in hell nor cast into hell at this point, like we mentioned. So even if you're a dispensationalist, um, they are not yet there and they're not before the great white throne. So even if you're taking a literal approach, this doesn't fit. Um, some would advocate that this parallels with Luke 19:27, where that says, "But as for these enemies of mine, who we did not want, we did not, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me, so they are slain before the Lord, but not first without suffering His holy retribution." But here's the thing: one, the torment with fire, brimstone, and eternal smoke takes place in the presence again of the Holy Lord and His angels, and it takes place in the presence of believers as well. So, could you be happy for all eternity witnessing excruciating fire and torture of hundreds and thousands of people? So, if that, well, that's what we're taking. This is before the angel and everyone else, and this is truly the lake of fire where people are tortured forever, yeah. and we're all able to watch it. Would you be happy sitting there in heaven, just like looking over the, the, your backyard and be like, ah, oh, Johnny, yeah, still burning. Like, you wouldn't think that. Like, that would be fun. If you say yes, get right with Jesus, okay? Right. That's, like, that's, kind of, that's demented. You don't need that negativity on this demented. show. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, what about the word forever here? But doesn't the text say that they, the torment will go on forever? But no, it doesn't. Read it carefully. It clearly says that the smoke will rise forever. Smoke rising forever is much different than torment going on forever. So remember, in the Bible... The smoke rising forever and ever 
is a picture of destruction. It's the same language used for Sodom and Gomorrah. So the smoke of their destruction will go up forever and ever. It doesn't go smoke to this day. So it's talking about them right now here. And again, it's using that same language in the Old Testament for a reason. Revelation takes a lot. Uh, somebody once drew a, a chart of all the different phrases it uses from all the different parts of the Old Testament. And it's like mm -hmm. mind dumbing <laughs> because it's trying to build this big picture. It's a very picturesque book and it's very vibrant in that sense. It's also what makes it very confusing. Mm -hmm. And I'll say this, I'm not a Revelation expert. It's actually eschatology I really, really, really need to study. I just hate studying it. But anyway, <laughs> I'll do it. Um, all right. So Revelation 19.3 says this. Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. It's about fine. So again, smoke of her, of her goes up forever and ever is again about finality. One day Babylon will be destroyed. And even in heaven, we will never forget God's destruction of that city. Hence, the smoke will rise forever. It's a picture of just utter eternal destruction. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. So it is not a proper hermeneutic to view the scripture in Revelation 14.10 apart from how other biblical writers use it, and not one of them uses it to imply eternal torment. So again, look at Isaiah, uh, use how they use the exact wording of the city of Edom being destroyed. The smoke thereof shall go up forever and ever from generation to generation. It shall lie waste, it shall lie waste. none shall pass through it forever and ever. That's Isaiah 34.10. Edom was destroyed, and the smoke rising forever was meant to be a remembrance of the statement. This is eternally destroyed. Hopefully, we I, I think we've hammered that. I think we have. But just look at the language. It's really interesting. You can Google all the times it says rise forever and ever, and you'll be surprised. So, And then it says the no rest day or night. I already mentioned that this could be this idea of them being in continual rebellion, as many people have taken it. But since this is before the... But and again, we're going to take a dispensational view because dispensationalists are tend to be the most literal. Since this is before the lake of fire, it makes sense that, it, that this is regarding the tribulation period, that they will have no rest because they have taken the mark of the beast. Another translation is that they have no rest day and night who are bowing before the beast in the image. So there could be a tense change here, which would change the meaning. So this takes place while they are bowing to the beast, worshiping him, that they have no rest day or night because they are completely fully consumed in their evil wickedness. So it states that the worship is going on because the present tense upon this earth. So again, let me repeat. It states that worship is going on in the present tense upon this earth. So Revelation 11.10, Revelation 14.11, 16.2, and all have the same Greek tense. So you have to make them all acts of worship while upon this earth, because they're not saying in the future. So again, that's taking a dispensational approach real quick. Likely a picture of their own restlessness and idolatry. However, I don't think that this dispensationalist view here is necessary, nor to be an annihilationist, mm -hmm. nor do I think it's actually the right way to look at this. Not saying that dispensationalism necessarily is wrong, just saying that the way dispensationalists sometimes will read this doesn't quite make sense. Yeah. Um, because I do believe this is what we call an introverted parallelism. So what we'll do is I'm going to just put an image here with the parallelism. And I just want you to take a really good look at this, and you'll notice that A, if anyone worships the mark of its beast in his image, receives a mark on his forehead or in his hand, B, he'll also drink the wine of God's wrath and pour it on mix into the cup of his anger. Now, you can read through that, but I just want you to notice how this flows if you actually parallel these. If you read these as parallel, separate statements parallel to each other. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, 
AI, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of his names. Notice how they parallel each other? (laughs) That's like a continual thought, right? B, he also shall drink the cup of the wine of God's wrath poured unmixed into the cup of his anger, B-I, and they have no rest day or night. That makes more sense. C, he shall be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy Lord, the holy angels, and the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. So again, we see if this is a parallelism, then we just see this is a very much a picture of those who have completely given over to Satan will be destroyed. It's just really kind of driving that home. And then finally, Revelation chapter 20. Don't worry, we'll get to rich man and Lazarus here in a minute. Um, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who has deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Ooh, forgot about that one. Just kidding. I'm ECT now. (laughs) I've changed my mind. (laughs) Um, First things first, if you're taking a dispensationalist approach and you're taking something very literal, very simple way to point this out here. All other language is destruction referring to people, and this would be the only time where we're seeing that uh, torment is coming up day and night, and that is only the beast and the false prophet, so therefore it would be the beast and the Antichrist. Only they would be suffering forever and ever. That would be the most you could take from this if, on a literal view. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'd have to assume the rest. But um, the annihilationists would point out that John sees a vision where three beings are thrown into a lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever. But this vision itself symbolizes the destruction of things that the images uh, represent in real life. This is apocalyptic language. As Isaiah 66, 24 reveals, torment forever is merely symbolic of destruction. So apocalyptic literature in Hebrew, in like the Hebraic thought, and, and is oftentimes filled with idiomatic language. And, if, and people have pointed this out. Many scholars have pointed it out. If you take all these things too literally, you, it's, it becomes a problem because it's not actually respected language in its proper context. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why like Jeremiah and all of them, if you read it, look at it, it's written poetically. Like, it's, like you notice that like also like even in your ESV, it changes the way like... It doesn't read in paragraph form, it reads in poetic form. Yeah. And that's because it's reading in Hebraic poetry. That's the whole point, is trying to draw a picture, not necessarily tell you the literalness of it, but draw the really just draw you a picture of what's going to happen. So who is the beast? Who is the false prophet? Who is the whore of Babylon? All these things, all these figures in Revelation are like pictures of things that they represent, right? So the beast could represent Satan. Um, the whore of Babylon could represent pagan religion, or there's a lot of things. So if these things, ideologies have a hard time being tortured because it's an idea. Yeah. <laughs> so this concept I think is important, okay, that to understand that this very well could be just picturesque language. Joseph Deere says this, that the conditionalists have this one problem passage, and in one passage describing an un, unabashedly symbolic vision of monsters in a lake of molten sulfur, we have to deal with a symbolic description of final punishment that seems contradictory to what we believe actually happens. But if it, but if it is absurd that in one passage in the book of Revelation of all places, the Bible would use eternal torment to symbolize destruction, then why is the traditionalist view not all the more ridiculous for saying that in many passages, death and destruction symbolize eternal torment? <laughs> so in other words, he's saying, okay, all right, okay, all right, hold up. All right, so this we have this one problem passage. But if you're going to take pull it from Revelation, after this crazy picture of monsters and dragons... If you're going to say that this one pa- passage from this one book that's very, very glorious in its, in its yeah. pictures, 
this one problem passage means I have to be ECT and it changes my entire view, then how much worse is it for you because you have so many more verses that say utter destruction? Yeah. So he's basically saying, what's your ratio here? If 99 of these say destruction and one says eternal conscious torment, which one are you going to head your bets on? Yeah. I would do the, the one that has all the evidence. <laughs> right. So that's just kind of the idea here. Like, it's not like, so that's what he's kind of driving at there. Um, and for those who are, again, more the pre-trib dispensational view, uh, Dick Warren points out what I pointed out, which is, again, the, the, uh, the false prophet and the beasts, if they are human beings, then they're the only ones that need to be tortured. And that's all we see here. He says more, but we'll just do that. So finally, let's get to the one that I was most concerned about. This is one of the ones I was most concerned about because yeah. Revelation, I was like, okay, Revelation is just Revelation. That one, that book, that book confuses me. <laughs> um, but uh, Luke, I was like, but what about that story about the rich man and Lazarus? I don't think I need to reread it. It's a long passage, but you guys know which one I'm talking about in Luke chapter 16, 19 through 31. So, of course, rich man, there's this other dude named Lazarus. One, they both die, and Lazarus wakes up in Abraham's bosom in paradise. And then the rich man is, wakes up and opens up his eyes in torment, mm -hmm. and he sees that there's a great chasm beneath, be, be, uh, between them. Many people take that as Tartarus, the pit. And he asks for one drop of water you know, from his finger to be dipped in water and to put, be placed on his tongue and someone to go warn his family. So ECT people obviously are saying, see, this is him waking up in hell. At me, bro. This is very clear. Mm-hmm. And this broke my brain. This part, I literally, like, I, I, I felt my brain break when I read this part <laughs> from an annihilationist perspective because it was one of those things that information is power and mm. information changes views. Yeah. So I always took this as a literal story. Then over time, I became like, okay, maybe it doesn't have to be literal, but I'm still pretty sure it's literal. And now I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's a freaking parable straight up. Like, <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure I used this verse in my class for you on why the Hebrew Old Testament because of some things in the Apocrypha that make it sound like you can pray someone out of purgatory. And I said, oh, look, it's fixed. You can't, the chasm is great. You can't go between. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, dang. I was like, oh, oops. Well, I was ECD then, so it made sense. Yes. So, um, let's, so let's talk about this real fast. It is likely, again, um, a parable. And let me explain why. So there's a good argument that this is a parable and not a literal story. So let's break this down. The only argument in favor of it being literal is that it uses the proper name Lazarus. Okay? Um, whenever I hear this, it's like, well, it's the only parable that Jesus uses a proper name, so therefore it must be literal. And I used to use that same argument until you kind of realize that's a bit of a stretch. Mm -hmm. Like, because someone uses a proper noun, essentially, suddenly it must be a very literal mm -hmm. story. Yeah. Like... That, that seems, that's sus on its own, right? Okay, so, however, Lazarus means God has helped. What is the moral of Lazarus's side of the story? That though he was poor and lowly, God helped him, mm -hmm. right? So, almost like there could be a point in this parable of making a theological point, that God has helped him. God <laughs> helps the poor, almost like Jesus has been preaching this the entire time he's been on earth. So, that kind of it lends itself to that picture. Um, so the four previous stories were parables. This is the other big one. If you read Luke 15, 4, verse 4, verse 8, verse 11, uh, 16, 11, 16, 1, I mean. The, the, the previous four stories leading up to this were parables. 
Why would we think that this would be any different if Luke, the author of the gospel, is just quoting his parables? <laughs> that doesn't make a lot of sense for him to randomly be like, but this one's real <laughs> just because I use a proper noun. Yeah. You know what I mean? So the same chapter Jesus uses the same, uh, and oh, that's the other thing. In this chapter, in Luke 16, of the rich man Lazarus, he uses the same intro that he does with his parables. There was a certain rich man. There was a certain man. There was a certain thing. Jesus, that's how, that, was his, that was his way of walking into every parable. <laughs> so, um, re, so both passages have to do with the abuse of money and materialism. This is why Jesus calls out their love for money. So Jesus concludes the parable with this proper moral in place in verse 31, where he says, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. He is saying they will never listen to him because they don't even listen to Moses and the prophets. Their unbelief is due to their love for money. So Matthew says Jesus only spoke to people in parables. Matthew 13.34 says, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced of someone should rise from the dead. So, And again, if he says that, hey, remember, hey, why is it they speak in parables, Master? He mm. only speaks in parables. That's all the time. He came preaching and speaking in parables. Um, so if he spoke in parables, then why would we assume that this would not this be a parable? might be a parable. Then. Right. <laughs> and it's so funny because when you say this, people start getting really upset because they start thinking like you're almost challenging like the authenticity of scripture. Like, oh, so now I can't take scripture literally. I'm like, no, it yeah. just means that you're taking this as a parable like everything else. You're telling me there's not seeds that grow on different areas of ground. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what, it, and that's the problem with some people like, and that's kind of like that weird old fundamentalist view of things. Like mm -hmm. you have to view it exactly my way. Otherwise we have to throw scripture yeah. out. And that's not true. There's a lot of views on scripture and uh, you can disagree with my views on scripture and that's okay. And, but we have to understand the fact that just because that someone has a different view on something doesn't necessarily mean that they suddenly don't take scripture seriously mm -hmm. or as seriously as you do. But here's the other thing that broke my brain. So it follows four other parables. Um, we also see that Jesus spoke in parables. And also, you, does any ever want, have anyone wondered why they never people did not understand his parables? <laughs> they aren't rocket science, right? Yeah. Really not. Oh wow, I can't understand this at all. <laughs> right, right. Like the, the sowing of the seeds, the the, the parable of the virgins, the good Samaritan. They're pretty easy to understand. Yeah. <laughs> like, are these people just that stupid? But it wasn't until I realized that Jesus was actually quoting well-known Jewish parables uh -oh. to them, but he always put a twist on it which is why it confused them because it's familiar stories with a different sto with a different twist. Think of it like the rabbit and the tortoise in the race. Like we all know that story, right? Mhm. Mm the rabbit thought he'd win, he was cocky, he kept sleeping, the tortoise or the turtle kept going slow but steady and he, he finished the race and he won and the rabbit didn't because he was foolish and prideful. Well, it's like telling that story but then you give it a little twist at the end, right? Like and instead when the turtle got close the rabbit murdered him, and no one know why. Yeah. Like then everyone would be like, "Whoa, why, why?" And they're like, "Yeah, great mystery." And then you'd act all wise, and you'd be like, "I'm so confused. Why did why did the rabbit murder the turtle?" Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I have no idea why the rabbit murdered the turtle. It was it just came to mind. <laughs> but it's this idea, like a weird twist at the end that would make you go, "What?" I was expecting you to tell a Star Wars story. So Star Wars stories work you too. Caught me off guard. <laughs> well, well, I should have used that. That or a Middle Earth one. But anyway. <laughs> um, so anyway, 
There is a Jewish background to parables. Um, after the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, so soon after Jesus' burial and resurrection, the Jews wrote down their oral tradition in the Mishnah. It was studied by the Jews in Babylon and Jerusalem, known as the, what we call the Gemara. Many of Jesus' parables are actually found in these writings, showing that Jesus was, in fact, a trained Jewish rabbi, and he was well taught. Now, this is really important that I mention this real fast, because people discount Jewish writings all the time. I actually ran into that recently like with a, a, a scholar who told me that I was bringing in like later rabbinic understandings of words and not ancient ones. And it was just kind of funny because actually I wasn't, but he, he seemed to think so. But the point is here is that if the Jews really didn't want to be associated with Jesus, which they didn't, uh, after the fall of Jerusalem especially, mm -hmm. so when they write down their oral tradition, um, why would they include Jesus' parables? <laughs> if you're trying he to. He was really smart, but. Definitely not the Messiah. Right. So <laughs> if you're trying to like discount him or discount Jesus and all that, you would try to like write his writings out, right? Like we're not yeah. going to acknowledge those. We're going to keep our Judaism with our traditional rabbis and, you know, we're not going to ignore, uh, we're not going to acknowledge Yeshua who is claimed to be Messiah. But here's what, here's some parables we find. We find the parables of the 10 virgins. We find parable of the servants who worked different hours, but received one talent. We see the parable of the sheep and the goats. We also found the parable of the wedding banquet where someone was thrown out for not wearing that which was appropriate. And we also find, yep, you know it, the rich man and Lazarus. Uh-oh. <laughs> yep. So, um, let's see, where is that? So let me just read that part to you. There's a, I had a bunch of other notes, but just for sake of time, we'll get through this part. The Gemara says this, and I quote from the, this, There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, who was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Sounds pretty close <laughs> to Jesus' story, if you ask me. So really, Lazarus is supposed to be uh, a test in hospitality and caring for the poor, and the rich man failed the test. The purpose of Jesus telling this parable is not to teach about hell, but to exhort the Pharisees to be more hospitable. After recounting the Jewish parable, he adds on a, a postlude where two people in Sheol have a fictitious conversation. Why shouldn't this be taken literally? Because uh, other parables of dead people in the Old Testament aren't taken literally. <laughs> so, uh, InterVarsity Press scholar Craig Keener and many other conservative commenta commentators have also called this a parable. Uh, he has said, uh, Keener said, some Jewish parables, including the rabbinic one mentioned at the beginning of this section, named a character or two, but this parable specifies only economic inversion, which is really what it's getting at, right? The rich man, and the, the rich man not taking care of the poor and not giving where he should. So, Anyway, um, those are the main chunks here. Uh, there is a lot of other things like, um, so I just, to remind you guys in Isaiah 118, so come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, does your, so my idea, my thought question for you is, does your view of hell fit that bill? Um, in fact, C.S. Lewis said, there is no doctrine I would be more willingly remove, I would more willingly remove from Christianity than hell. <laughs> so, because it is, it's hard, right? But if you tell people like, no, no, God destroys the wicked, 
That actually is an apologetic thing because it shows that God is just, but he's also merciful. He's not going to mm-hmm. torture them forever. And I also think that there it's hard to justify like how does God bring about a new creation and destroy all evil if evil continually exists in rebellion against God in hell? How can we say he brings about a new, a new creation where he wipes away every tear when he's causing tears in a place called hell? These are just hard questions that you, I mean, I've heard the answers and I personally, I just don't find them convincing as convincing as it just used to go, well, why would I go through so many lengths of so much gymnastics to get around, to, to, to try to justify my belief when I could just take a much simpler approach <laughs> and just go, okay, clearly this language is used figuratively for destruction in the Old Testament. Probably means that in the New Testament, destruction is probably the way it is. God gives eternal life to one, destroys the other, boom, done. Just and makes it makes a lot cleaner, it seems. If you hold to ECT and PSA, penal substitutionary atonement, you got a real issue here too, because uh, you're saying, okay, the punishment for sin is to be eternally, consciously tormented in hell. And Jesus died on the cross and was eternally, consciously tormented for three days. Or you might say before then on the cross. That's what's his torment. Either way, it was cer- certainly not eternal. <laughs> so you have this, Jesus has only has to do it for a little bit, and he pays for the sins of the entire world. <laughs> it doesn't seem to, comp- those two views don't really seem to compute. And the, res- the response you'll get from that is, well, because Jesus is eternal, so he was able to suffer the eternal punishment in a very short period of time, and that counted. And right, like, they kind of defer to his ontology, that through God's, yeah. Christ's eternal nature, that he is able to fulfill the eternal demand of hell, so to speak. Which is just a claim. Which, yeah, that gets a little. That's a that's that gets weird. I'm like, I'm not sure how Christ's ontology somehow satisfies an eternal demand of punishment, but okay. Or one or in both that, of those, like are in wrong. that sense of like torture, like like I don't. Yeah. It's it gets a little weird when you start. I'm not convinced by that argument personally, but um, that's at least the argument we've yes. heard, or response we've heard from several. So some questions for you. Uh, just to ask, uh, we're not going to, I don't think, do I have to give our answers or do you no. just ask them? Okay. couple, so some questions to you regarding hell and your view of hell. How is your view of hell considered justice? So no matter what you view, you should answer that. You should be able to answer that. Uh, how do babies fit into your theology of hell? We already have our whole thing on original sin and inherited guilt. We know how ours fit, but how does yours fit? Which part is figurative? So which language is figurative in the, your interpretation? You got to figure that out because mm-hmm. one of them's got to be inter- uh, figurative. Um, how does immortality fit into your theology? Is everyone immortal by nature because they have a human soul or is that a gift that's given? Um, how does Old Testament language fit into your theology? That's a really good question. How does it fit? Uh, Jesus paid humanity's debt, but through what? Through punishment? Was it just through death? You should ask yourself that. It's an atonement question that does connect to hell. Um, how does Revelation 21 4 fit into your theology, which is he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more? Death shall be no more. It sounds like people aren't being tortured forever in this thing called death where they're not really dead, mm-hmm. but consciously tormented, right? So how does how does that fit into your theology? You have to figure that out. Um, how does Jeremiah 7 30 30 to 30 to 33 fit into your theology, which we want to get into all that, but you see again the Valley of Hinnom there and the idea of what, which really shows the fact that it's destructive language, it's a place of destruction, it's not a place of torture in any way. 
Uh, also, the nature of fire, the nature of the fires of hell being described as consume, and also eternal. Right. So we have they shall not be quenched, and we also see that they consume. And the word consume has this idea of destruction. Like in Hebrews ten twenty six through twenty seven, Leviticus ten one through two describes these the flames as consuming, um, consuming them before the Lord. So we see that same language in Revelation eighteen eight through nine. That consumed means destroyed. And then finally, how does the new creation fit into your theology? Now, you don't have to agree with us on annihilationism. Now, we've been cheeky and we've had some fun in this Mm -hmm. episode. But you don't have to agree with us on it. But how do you answer those questions? And also, are you just trying to hold on to ECT because of a bias? And also, are you just trying to switch away from ECT just because you uh, you emotionally struggle with eternal conscious torment? By the way, that's not always a bad thing. Like sometimes your your feelings can be an intuition with there where mm-hmm. that you but doesn't mean it's true, right? Just because you're uncomfortable with the truth about the Bible doesn't mean it suddenly becomes false. <laughs> just means that you might want to flesh that out for a minute and so you can become more comfortable with it. For me, I just realized the more I studied, I was like, oh my goodness, I think annihilation actually is true. Yeah. And then it actually made sense. For me, I actually went, it balanced the scales in my mind where I was like, oh, actually that makes sense if God's merciful, but he's also just. Like, for me, it just kind of balances scales really well. Um, and now there's different views. Some people believe that you just go to the grave and you're destroyed. Some people believe that you're, like, resurrected before with everyone else. Everyone's resurrected together, and then one's on to heaven and one's to destruction. Some people believe that you are burned for uh, uh, whatever amount of time that is needed to burn away your sins until you're destroyed. Um, there's different views on how that is worked out. I don't really care about those. I, for me, I just care about, like, well, what happens in the end. Ultimately, either way, hell's bad. So this should just be good practice anyways, no matter what the topic is, whether it's hell or anything else. If you're like, this is what I think is true. And or you just hear something go, oh, yeah, that's they're so silly for thinking that the Bible's so clear on this. Just go read it. Go read all the supporting passages for what you believe your view is and actually break it down. Are you using the right categories? Does it make sense? Does it flow? Are you applying real figurative language to override very direct, simple language? Um, so do it for hell. Do it for any other topic yep. that comes up because I think it's a good exercise. We also do because we're trying to pursue truth, and I think that's how you avoid church splits is actually trying to u- use scripture to actually find out what the truth is instead of just being staunch on what you've always believed, right? Or right. What you're you always hear, taught. The moment you hear something that you don't normally, well, you normally wouldn't agree with, study it mm-hmm. before you just freak out and write a letter to the board <laughs> um, and just do all sorts of silly foolishness. Study it, yeah. learn it, ask questions. I've changed a lot of positions because I've read. And then there's other positions I became stronger on because I read. And I was like, nope, I'm not convinced by those arguments. That actually, now that I've heard your argument, I'm more convinced I'm right. Yeah. <laughs> Which might have happened for you if you're ECT and you'd listen to this. You're like, God, yep, they are totally wrong on this in every way that they tried to explain away these concrete ECT passages. I am more staunch in my view of ECT than I ever was before. Okay, cool. Thanks for watching. Yeah, exactly. That about sums it up. So anyway, we've wanted to do this one for a long time. I know it was a longer episode, but I felt like we should at least walk you through the main passages, kind of walk you through the main thoughts. Sorry if it got a little clunky in there. Um, Also, for those who made it to the end of the video, sorry, the uh, quality is weird. 
Um, our one camera was having issues. We recently interviewed Dr. Stephen Boyce, and it just kept turning off. We had to keep turning it on and turning it off, turning it on. Uh, lots of technical problems. So we sent that in for warranty repair. So we're using one that no, doesn't do 4K, but it's stuck on 1080. So yeah. it's not as nice. We went back in time a little bit. But. Yeah, so <laughs> sorry if we look a little washed out, but hey, whatever. You're not here to see our faces. You're here for the content. And all right. you on audio don't care at all. So Yeah, the people on audio are like, what are you talking about? There's video? <laughs> you guys have video? <laughs> you can watch it on YouTube, too, if you'd like. Yeah. Audio is just fine. Yes. Although if you do watch on YouTube, you really do help the algorithm. So that <laughs> reminds me, smash the like button and ring the bell because you really are helping us. Um Especially when we're not putting as much content out, it slows down the channel hard. Yeah. Um, I don't think many people are getting the push notifications as much as they were because we're just not yeah. as active. So, um, yeah, just do that, guys. But anyway, I, that, I that's all I have to say regarding this. I appreciate you guys watching The Church Split. Thank you for all your support. Hope this, ep- this episode was helpful because I've heard, I know you've heard us reference annihilationism, but we've never walked you through annihilationism. Yeah. And in Will's defense, he's wanted to do this for like a year. And mm-hmm. I was like, I'm not convinced yet, so I don't want to do a video on it. <laughs> well, then so I, I was dragging my feet. Yeah, but then I was like, well, we just got to compare views. We could just <laughs> compare views. You can compare yours and compare mine. It'll be fine. <laughs> that was, people have asked that you and I do an episode where we present something we disagree on. We should find an area we disagree on. iPhone versus Android. That will be the episode. <laughs> Look, just because I'm part of the commie Apple doesn't mean anything. Right? Like, I know what I am. He ar- did you hear that, guys? He just gave up on that debate already. Look, I'm not going to argue. He conceded. I'm not going to argue with an IT guy over technology. Like, I- I'm signing a death warrant. Like, no thing. I know my wheelhouse. I'll stay in my wheelhouses. I'm very comfy in my wheelhouse. I know. I'll be Good murdered. Times. You'll start using phrases on me, and they have, well, that's this feature. And I'm like, I don't even know what that is, bro. But I'm going to act like I know what it is because I can't look stupid. And then I'm going to start talking. I'll look even more stupid. And yeah, it'll just be bad. Anyway. Sounds like a lot of, bl- a lot of fun. Like a blast. Yeah, it sounds like you'd have a good time. Sounds I like would. I'd be miserable. <laughs> um, all right. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for watching the church split. Let us know your thoughts on hell below or if you have any other insights and if you have cool things in defense of ECT. Uh, we'd love to hear it. Have a fun dialogue down below. Be respectful or don't. As per the usual, if you if you like are gonna do leave us hate mail or roast us in a like an Apple Podcast review and not leave us five stars, but leave one, we only ask that you roast us and make it creative. Heck yeah. Okay. We have we have uh, Rager called me Rachel Maddow with a Civil War beard. That's stuck. The 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 the, the bar is high <laughs> after that. I, I need thing I need good roasting. So anyhow, guys, thank you for watching. Take care and God bless. Well, that was a hell of an episode. And guys, if you want to avoid seeing obnoxious ads like this, we gotta be strong, we gotta be healthy. When you wanna feel nice and strong and satisfied, you gotta check out Good Ranchers. Right now, go to goodranchers.com, use promo code Knowles. Or that. We also wanna thank Free Life Soap, because I don't know about y'all, but I got a new shipment of soap in. Yes, I did. Yes, sir. And it was great. Or this. Hi guys, my name is Will, and I'm here to tell you why you should be a student at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. Or that. We'll get to that momentarily. First, I want to talk to you about Daily Wire's most trusted privacy partner and premier sponsor of this show, ExpressVPN. Are you aware that your browsing data is constantly being tracked and monitored? Please support us on Patreon. We do not want to annoy you filthy heretics with any sort of ads on this show. So when you're a Patreon subscriber, you also get access to our apologetics classes and other video content a whole month. You can support us on Patreon for as low as $1 a month.